Welcome to the Ad Dot Podcast, everyone. I have a guest with me today, John Demick. And uh, John is currently co-founder and CTO of a company called Hypercurrent. And John has a very um, strong background in APIs and uh, middleware and so forth. And so, and I, I met John, I don't know, maybe maybe eight, 10 years ago or something. I know that we had some correspondence, but anyway, let's, uh, let's get to know John better together and his experience and see what we, we can learn from it. So welcome to the podcast, John. Sounds good. Great to be here, Bob. So um, I think when I first maybe had uh, some kind of contact with you, um, I mentioned in my uh, implementing domain-driven design red book, um, uh, MuleSoft, right? There, there was like a little story in the architecture chapter, still there, obviously, um, about this company, uh, fictitious company, SAS Ovation, and one of the tools that they were using was MuleSoft ESB. And I think sometime after that, maybe you introduced yourself by email, and I think we exchanged some pleasantries, and and then and then I think. Uh, a few years after that, we met. I had a workshop in New York, and you attended that in uh, New York City. So, um, anyway, tell us about. Um, let's say let's go back to MuleSoft with the ESB. Tell us about ESBs for those who aren't real familiar with what those are. Uh, yeah, no problem, Juan. So ESBs were they started as an architectural pattern. I, I want to say they were actually documented in the enterprise integration patterns book that came out in the mid 2000s. Uh, as, as a tangent, that book is excellent and, and most of it is still very applicable today. Uh, but, but after that uh, book was published, uh, a bunch of commercial and open source sort of projects fell out of it um, that implemented an ESB pattern. So, so an ESB again is an enterprise service bus. Uh, the, the idea with it back in the mid 2000s was for at the time, to take SOAP APIs, which was the dominant um, uh, API integration implementation, and essentially connect them to a bus where the bus would be a central point for uh, non-functional business requirements for these APIs. So the, the bus would handle things like mediation, routing, security, authentication, um, uh, reliable delivery, right? All, all, all the stuff that we, we take for granted now with things like messaging brokers were all sort of centralized in, in uh monolithic enterprise service bus pattern. Right. And at the time, um, as I recall, there, you know, messaging was like JMS, Java message, messaging service. And um, so it was, you know, I mean, it, it had most of the kind of uh, broker type features in the API, but you also needed a an implementation behind that. I'm pretty sure that, yeah, well, most of the um, J2EE app servers at the time had JMS support and then came along message-driven beans, which I thought were horrendous. <laughs> I don't know how everybody else felt about those, but so um, how did you, did, did you build a message broker underneath the, the enterprise service bus or... How did that work? Yeah, so at the time, I was um, chief architect at a startup called OpSource. Uh, so at OpSource, we had actually successfully implemented a ESB internally. 
uh, you know, granted we were a startup and our footprint was, was modest compared to like, you know, a large retail bank or something. Uh, but for our particular implementation, um, this is actually how I got involved in the Mule project is we were using uh, a nascent version of Mule. I want to say it was like a pre 1.0 version, uh, using that as a central broker for our different soap-based web services. And then underneath the, uh, the Mule implementation, uh, we had a variety of, of different message brokers that we had experimented with. Uh, I think we landed on, at the time it was called OpenMQ, something that Sun had open sourced. Uh, but before that, I tried ActiveMQ and a few other things. Uh, but, but essentially, the, the pattern was that uh, our, our SOAP endpoints were effectively um, dumb. So they would send things, send traffic back and forth to the bus. The bus would go and then transparently persist the XML messages onto the messaging layer, which would give us reliable delivery and routing. And then we'd use that to pass messages around the different services in our organization. And then, and then also do transformation, et cetera. Yeah, which is... Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say quickly too, uh, and, and this will this sort of explains how the Mule project itself evolved. Is that we also use the bus as a decoupling point for our external integrations. Uh, so I want to say we were doing work with that, I, a ticketing system. I want to say it was right now. Maybe um, this would have been like in two thousand six, two thousand five. Uh, but but essentially, we had these these SaaS services that we were using, uh, and then we would use the bus as a, a essentially a, a anti corruption layer for our external partner durations as well. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, that takes us way back. Um, and around that time, maybe anti-corruption layer um, pattern was known, barely known by, uh, you know, through Eric Evans' book. Um, so what kind of happened with ESB? I mean, from my perspective, I've, you know, I think uh, people started using the bus for business logic. They would deploy some things there in a, in a rush to get some things done. And um, that's one perspective. But what what did you find? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think there were, there were two sort of backlashes against it that were valid, uh, one technical and one maybe political. Uh, one of the technical patterns that came along with ESPs were canonical data models. Uh, so the the other kind of pattern is that as different disparate services were landing messages on the bus, you'd transform to a canonical format that the bus would use internally, and then and then you know from a uh, corruption layer standpoint, translate back and forth from the different services. Um, the, these canonical formats, however, were complicated, and you know in general within organization, if there's different domains, uh, trying to get everyone to agree on a single canonical model for everything that's cross domain or cross context. Um, that that generally falls over. Uh, I'd say the other pitfall uh, that bit the ESB patterns and vendors in general was also uh, they were complicated, and that generally meant a centralized team would manage the bus, and usually that would be you know some function in central IT. And then as different services are getting onboarded on the bus, it required more and more work from the central team that essentially were you know if if, if they generally weren't well funded in, in some places. And then just became bottlenecks in terms of getting, you know, getting services and data in and out of the uh, the bus. And this led to just different organizations doing their own thing in silos, sort of defeating the, the purpose of the whole pattern altogether. Yeah. But I think you got one thing, right? It seemed like you got, uh, was it um, dumb pipes, uh, smart endpoints? I mean, that was what it was supposed to be, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, um, and so, but... 
there were plenty that were uh, doing, you know, sort of smart pipes in a way. Um, but so then, okay, so ESB um, kind of got, you know, went from fast track to off the track, I guess. And um, MuleSoft, I don't know, did you see that coming at the at MuleSoft? And and either way, how did you react to that? Yeah, it was interesting. So my journey with uh, with MuleSoft and then the you know the framework in general was was realizing that the value that it gave was ironically not much. Shouldn't say not much. It wasn't primarily in the ESB world. It was more as a, a in the integration and transformation pieces. Uh, so, so where I got really successful using Mule was uh, was using it within at the time Java and Spring apps embedded. And then using it uh, to transform data back and forth from different systems. Uh, and then the way that at least I thought about it was like a distributed ESB that was uh, embedded in each of the endpoints versus a monolithic thing that was deployed centrally and doing centralized routing and transformation. Uh, so when I joined Mule, uh, MuleSoft in 2011, uh, that was sort of the, the hypothesis I came in in that company, thinking that you know, as ESBs were you know, we're going away. There was still a lot of value in this framework as, a, as an embedded transformation and integration um, uh, layer and framework. So um, would you say that that uh, because kind of the the routing knowledge was, I guess, at the, uh, at the service level or in services, um, was that sort of more like a choreography, um, whereas the ESB was more like an orchestrator? orchestration yeah the, the way the way that we started thinking about it and, and this is you know at least from my perspective how a lot of the the api led and api first thinking sort of came out of mulesoft uh was essentially thinking about apis and then eventually microservices as as falling into two different camps uh so one sort of api or microservice could be very business or domain centric uh, so those sorts of things you'd build in a traditional language like java or net and then use frameworks like spring or, you know um uh, and then those, again, would be heavy on, on domain modeling and objects and, and traditional sort of software development. But then particularly in large enterprises with a lot of legacy investments, um, you'd have microservices that were very transformation, orchestration, and potentially choreography focused. Right. So these are things that are integrating with mainframes, uh, integrating with legacy databases, uh, potentially not having any real business logic in them. So essentially just, you know, querying databases and transforming the result sets into different formats, uh, you know, JSON, XML. Um, and then, yeah, so, so these sorts of uh, services didn't really make a lot of sense to uh, write in a traditional framework. And that's where I think MuleSoft uh, really took off is when we made that distinction. So what, how would you describe that it, that it was done with the, you know, when MuleSoft really took off, what was the, the difference in the way the services or the endpoints were implemented? Uh, I think that the, the, the main difference was a push to do API-led or API-first implementations. Uh, as much as like that, that t- term has been you know overloaded and abused, uh, unfortunately. But but it was this this idea that as organizations were building out services to think of them as being composed, and then um, thinking about them from the API contract first, and then implementing um, downstream from there. Uh, and then what's interesting about that approach as well is that that's also agnostic of the technology, right? Because the APIs that are designed properly should be, should hide the backend implementation. So this allowed 
uh, a technology team to pick the right tool for the job in terms of how to build out the back end. And in a lot of cases, that happened to be MuleSoft because, again, most of these things were were very transformation and orchestration focused in, in more traditional enterprises. Yeah. So, and and you went from um, from SOAP sounds like in in the ESB or maybe mainly SOAP, um, but probably also you. Well, you switched from there probably to rest, um, is my guess. Well, yeah, that was that was the other uh, you know evolution from the mid two thousands to the present, right? So uh, there was also a very large backlash, and you know you know this with with heavyweight SOAP and XML frameworks. Uh, the, the major problem with SOAP uh, beyond the actual frameworks being brittle was that they were very dependent on um, uh, automatic contract generation from programmatic schemas. Uh, so the you know the, the general pattern is that you you take like a Java or a .NET uh, interface class and then push a button and then we get some you know massive WSDL that was you know almost impossible to actually parse yourself right and then you know you use this as the contract for interchange but then since these things were so complicated and the corresponding XML schemas the XXDs were also extremely complicated uh, unless you're using the same SOAP stack on each side. There was all sorts of inter- interoperability issues in between the SOAP stacks, which defeated the purpose of using, you know, using intermediary uh, uh, exchange protocol. Um, where actually where I started to get successful with SOAP, ironically, is when I started writing the whistles by hand. So rather than use the um, the programmatic approach, I would um, I would author the I'd start with the whistle, write my XML schemas, and then generate the service interfaces the other way, so backwards. And that's actually where we started to get successful at, at OpSource with, uh, with, with XML, SOAP-based interfaces. Um, as this evolved, there was kind of a, a bridge between SOAP and now the restful world with, with things like OAS, Swagger, and RAML, uh, where uh, people were using formats like JSON, right? So it was basically JSON or XML over HTTP. Um, that worked well, but there was, uh, there was no real schema to it. So it was, it was sort of ad hoc. In terms of how you integrated with these, you know, these intermediary um, uh, uh, RESTful formats before the the formalized contract languages came, and then you know, then again, like in the 2013-ish timeframe, um, MuleSoft introduced RAML. There was Swagger, uh, and, and that's when I think you saw REST APIs explode from a popularity standpoint because you had the ease of integration coupled with the um, uh, the tightly defined schemas to make to make uh, integration easy. Although, yes, good. And I would say, though, that some people might conclude that um, even Swagger or OpenAPI specification is not the easiest thing either, even compared to, you know, WSL definitions. What do you think of that? You know, I agree. And, and there, I mean, I'd argue that, that Ravel and Swagger are overly verbose. Um, We've actually, uh, at Hypercurrent now, have come up with a good middle ground in between the two. Uh, so we're using Kotlin as our implementation language. And we actually start with um, designing our controller layers and our views first. And those are the views are, are data classes in Kotlin. So, you know, very easy to parse. Like when I say parse, I mean, you can visually look at the data class and see what the fields are and the data types. And then we're producing the OAS contracts off of that interface. So that gives us the best of both worlds where we can, you know, define like a really concise uh, contract and then um, then view or DTO and Kotlin produce the OAS documentation off of that automatically. 
and then have our domain logic decoupled from that that intermediary layer. Yeah, yeah. I'm still struggling with the name for that pattern, but that, that's what we've been using. It's been pretty successful so far. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Olaf Zimmerman and uh, his co-authors just had their um, book published under my signature series. And uh, it's called, what is it? Patterns for uh, API Design. And in that book, they talk a bit about, um, what is it called? M. MDSL and MDSL is um, it's actually a textual DSL, not a um, not a programming you know language DSL um, or not based on a on a, an existing programming language, and it actually reduces the um, the OAS spec you know overhead quite a bit, but out of that, you get the OAS. So it sounds like a, a similar thing, but I, I like the idea of um, essentially you're, you, it's like you have configuration as code, only it can't be code, you know, for it's, it has to be a document, right? Or, or an object. Um, but it seems like that, you know, you, you get to use a programming language like Kotlin to describe that and then um, you get the OAS out of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and then there's also the JAXRS annotations, or you know, we, we have to be using Spring Boot. There's Spring Boot uh, annotations as well that handle things like the other uh, documentation in terms of like examples and stuff that that's produced in the OAS mm-hmm. spec. Yeah, interesting. So um, you, let me see, you left MuleSoft maybe just a bit before the uh, Salesforce acquisition. And what it, you started your own consulting company? Is that what it was? Yeah, we started the consulting practice um, right after I left MuleSoft. Uh, we did that for a couple of years, and then uh, some of the founding team got antsy doing professional services. We all, you know, kind of like wearing the product hats. Uh, so we we decided to take you know uh, the experience we had working with really large customers on the consulting side and solving a particular problem that we saw in that space uh, with Hypercurrent, which is the uh, the product company that we started about a year ago. Mm-hmm. So um, so Hypercurrent then, or the ideas behind Hypercurrent are, I think, somewhat um, different than, you know, just like pure API management. Um, can you tell us about that and how the ideas came about, maybe working with uh, clients how those gelled? Yeah, yeah. The the original genesis for Hypercurrent was to solve a specific problem we saw in large organizations in terms of internal API usage. Uh, so uh, large, you know, again, large enterprises usually have a central IT team that procures something like, you know, say, MuleSoft or, you know, Apigee or Kong and then runs that as a central IT function. And then there's different business units or groups within the organization that build APIs that are deployed within, um, you know, usually essential infrastructure that central IT manages. So the particular problem we saw was the inability for uh, a central IT group to uh, track utilization of APIs across different groups and then essentially charge or show back that usage to each of the groups from a financial standpoint. Uh, so, so that was the, the the first iterations of the product were focused on that particular use case. 
Uh, although what we found uh, when we were we were you know just basically testing the product with with uh, early customers is that the real interest was actually doing external monetization and productization of APIs. Uh, so this essentially meant taking an internal API investment and then focusing that API outward uh, for other businesses to consume. Um, so as we started to explore that space, we noticed that um, while some vendors actually, you know, they, they have monetization features, they tend to be very developer to developer focused. Whereas the organizations that we were working with were interested in, in productizing APIs and selling them to other businesses. Um, and it was more of a function of, of almost like data transfer with APIs being the channel for that data and the ability to, to meter and monetize that data um, across businesses. So that that's where hypercurrent has evolved and where we are today. Which is something actually that I've uh, wondered why there isn't more monetization of APIs, but I I think it depends on the kind of business. If you're like a financial services, well, not all financial services, but maybe like a bank, you kind of need to have your API open and freely accessible. Um, but uh, what kinds of businesses would, would could actually justify monetization? Yeah, I mean, I, I can say in terms of the businesses that we're working with, uh, the, the main verticals are, you know, not surprisingly financial services, but one that actually surprised me was HLS, so healthcare and life sciences. Uh, so our, our biggest customer is an HLS um, HLS company that's selling uh, clinical research and natural language processing models and data via their APIs on their marketplace. Um, you know, uh, on the financial services side, uh, a lot of the monetization use cases are driven by disruption from, um, you know, from newer companies like Stripe or Plaid, who are unbundling the services that a traditional bank might offer. Uh, and then we're also seeing uh, seeing interest in the energy sector. So, um, you know, uh, doing things like... like uh, monetizing the location of chargers for uh, for EV or for electric vehicles, uh, uh, use cases like that. So like, um, oh, that's interesting. So maybe uh, Stripe, how, how are they, what kinds of services are they providing to that would compete with traditional banks? Uh, I mean, any kind of payment processing, right? So something that you might go to, uh, you know, Visa or... Um, you know, Bank of America or something, uh, you know, uh, startups and smaller businesses are going to, you know, vendors like Stripe because they're easier to integrate with, uh, mostly because their APIs are so nice to work with. Um, you know, one of the other the other things that we're doing is, you know, ignoring kind of the commercialization aspects of it is actually treating APIs truly as products. Uh, so when I was at MuleSoft, we talked about, you know, treating APIs like products um, a lot, but that was through the lens of, again, developers. So, you know, basically when you're releasing an API to make sure that the contract is, you know, is, is easily consumable, that the API is reliable, right? All, all the stuff you'd expect. Um, whereas with uh, what we're doing is obviously we still think that's important, but we're also covering the actual productization aspects of it and allowing these businesses to sell APIs the way that a, a traditional SaaS company might. Um, so when you describe um, developers working on APIs versus the whole organization, you know, being kind of like API first, as it were, you know, where the, where the organization's saying, we need to make money off of these things called APIs. There's a big difference between a department that simply says, we're developing an, an API 
and the whole organization like corporation, you know, corporate wide APIs, or at least some part of it, would you say that's kind of your dividing point where your, where your product really shines more on the corporate side? Um, I'd say, yeah, the, the corporate side, specifically with product managers, right? So, so, so um, whereas as a vendor like you know MuleSoft or Kong, uh, they'll help with the building and the proxying and the management of the APIs. We help with the actual commercialization of the API itself, right? So this this means um, integrating with developer portals to um, enable functionality like checkouts. Or like checkout rather, and then also provide um, uh, analytics on the uh, uh, product management side to see who's consuming the APIs, the quality of service for the consumers. Um, if the you know generally w- when you're, you're selling things to other businesses, there are SLAs that need to be met. Uh, so we also do tracking of producer side API SLAs. So if there's a, a commitment to a certain amount of uptime, or like in the case of financial services API, it could be. By committing to a certain latency target for data, uh, we can track those sorts of metrics and then and then analyze and report on them. So it, it, it's it's yeah, again more on the the actual uh, product operation of an API that's being commercialized. Yeah, good, cool, and I I think that um, what seems useful to me too is even if the organization doesn't sell access to APIs, it could still be quite useful to see. Um, how much APIs would, in essence, like virtually speaking or hypothetically speaking, um, how much would they be worth? And if if an API is rather expensive to uh, develop and maintain versus how much usage it's getting and how much it could, you know, if, if there was a monetization of it, how much it could make, that might be a, an interesting way to look at, well, is, is this actually worth having a, a team you know, develop this or at even a product manager work on it. Yeah, no, agreed, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great way to justify budget and everything else as well. Um, so yeah, agreed. So, um, well, wh- where do you think the industry is headed next with um, APIs? I mean, you, you know, you, you must be supporting uh, API tools other than... Um, other than REST, I, I imagine you're probably doing something with uh, GraphQL, something with gRPC, or maybe that's still on the roadmap for you. Uh, no, we're, we're supporting uh, we're supporting REST and sorry, yeah, REST obviously. Uh, GraphQL, uh, GraphQL is supported, and then um, for the newer API management vendors like uh, Gravity that have gRPC support out of the box, we can also uh, meter those sorts of transactions as well. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of in terms of where I see, sorry, where I see the the actual space going, and I think there there's definitely a white space now around event driven APIs. Um, you know, just given the, the the popularity of things like Kafka, and then you know all the kind of streaming stuff that's out there, that that seems like it's low hanging fruit from a you know from a, 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 a publicly consumable API standpoint. Yeah, and from those, do you see um, like? event and or even just message subscriptions coming through rest um kind of like you know rest callback if you will um or do you see um most of those coming through through you know like a first class messaging 
system like a broker, you know, whatever that is, maybe SQS or SNS or something like that on, on AWS. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see the latter because I'm not, not a huge fan of doing event-driven things over HTTP. It just, you know, it overloads the protocol too much. Uh, but but I, I think the, the first cuts of it will be the former, right? So either, like to your point, callbacks or, or potentially web sockets or something where it's something over HTTP. Um, you know, in terms of the latter, right, in terms of like native messaging protocols, it'd be great if there was a standard that everyone adhered to for that. But, the, you know, the, the problem is that like, these protocols are all over the place. Um, there, there's been attempts at um, attempts at doing some analog to swagger on the event-driven side, but I don't think they've gotten much traction uh, yet, unfortunately. Would that be the async API, folks? That's right. I was spacing yeah, the async yeah. API. And it, yeah. I, 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 that may have made progress. I haven't been tracking it too closely recently, yeah. but I mean, something like that would need to be in place, you know, pretty significantly before uh, before non-HTTP uh, messaging uh, gets more popular outside of the firewall. Yeah, yeah. I um, I haven't tracked it very carefully. It it does seem like it has some good sponsors, and I now hear clients talking about it like that they would like to look into being async API compliant. Um, and I'm not sure how async API would work with REST based, you know, sort of message feeds, if you will, or, or you know, notification feeds. But um, yeah, I, I need to look into that more. But um, how do you think that would work? Is it is it sort of like, okay, you get to listen to 10,000 events for free and then every 100,000 events costs, you know, such and such, you know, amount of money? Like, um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, one, one, one monetization mechanism could be volume-based, it could be throughput-based, um, it could be the, the timeliness of the data, right? So again, to things like, like in financial services with marked data, um, generally you're paying for, for latency and timeliness, uh, you know, for, for those sorts of event streams. Well, is there, is there anything that you think the audience would like to hear about in general, the, the long-term future of APIs, what, uh, where value is, is going to be maybe what they should steer clear of or what they should invest more in something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the trend that I've been seeing and, and was was part of the genesis of Hypercurrent was organizations uh, invested big in APIs and microservices about six or seven years ago, right? Uh, those use cases were almost purely internal, at least in my experience. Uh, but now as these organizations have maturity with internal APIs, that they're starting to uh, turn these things outwards. So that's the, the main trend that I've been seeing. And I think, you know, the, the vendors you're seeing that are popping up in this space, like like the API security vendors specifically, so startups like No Name Security, um, uh, they're specifically addressing the, the sort of challenges that come when you're taking something that was internal and then facing it towards the essentially entire planet to be able to consume. And then falling out of that, you know, in addition to the productization and commercialization aspects, there's also the, you know, the security and reliability aspects of running those sorts of programs. Do you think that GraphQL is a long-term um, kind of, you know, solution or go-to uh, tool for APIs or do you see it um, kind of, you know, um, 
would you say maybe uh, the trough of of uh, disillusionment or something, anything like that at this point? Or yeah, I, I'm I'm honestly a little bit suspicious of GraphQL. It, it reminds me of SOAP a lot in the sense that it's overloading um, HTTP, like everything goes over a post, um, and then. It's also probably a side effect of the implementation patterns, but there seems to be um, a reflex to tightly couple GraphQL, GraphQL APIs with databases, and that just seems like a bad idea. Like just giving you know um, uh, some unknown third party the ability to execute arbitrary queries against your database um, that that just makes me nervous. So. I'm a little bit suspicious of GraphQL at this point, but we'll see how that, that evolves. Yeah, as well it should. Yeah, it seems like something that might work better purely internally than externally. But um, yeah, I, I think one thing that I heard maybe even a few years ago now that is that GraphQL made a just like a perfect um, CQRS type pattern, especially for the read model or the query model. And I don't know, do you run across that at all? Um, we're, we're not doing CQRS. Um, where we introduced GraphQL um, was for ad hoc reporting. Uh, so, so one of the things I, I, I struggle with with REST APIs is how to, how to surface reports. Um, so GraphQL seemed like a way to do that. But, you know, in practice, at least, at least it could be the way that we've implemented it. Um, it, it's not really living up to that in terms of uh, matching the kind, same kind of complexity we can express in SQL um, for generating result sets for um, you know for the reports we're using for our own analytics. How, how do you see APIs kind of overlapping with um, the use of domain-driven design? So, uh, although CQRS is orthogonal, you don't use CQRS internally, but do you see um, any uses of domain-driven design among your your clients? Um, we're not getting, we're not getting into implementation. We're not getting to that level of either architecture or implementation with our customers right now. Like generally they have the APIs already built. Um, I mean, I, I can say that we are using DDD internally. Um, I, it's probably worth a separate conversation completely, but, but having done DDD at startups before, there's an interesting dynamic when you're learning the domain as it's evolving and sort of everyone is a domain expert because the organization is so small. Uh, So I've seen some, or I've learned some interesting things doing DDD specifically at Hypercurrent where we were basically, I want to say making it up as we were going along, but the requirements were evolving as we were writing the software. And that manifested itself um, in in terms of uh, the domain. And then also, um, uh, frankly, how some of the domain escaped into our services layer, and now we're moving that back into the domain model. Interesting. I, I suppose since your product is kind of technical, it, it might even be more of a challenge to use uh, domain-driven design than if, you know, like, I guess, line of business, although you could say that hypercurrent product is your, you know, a line of business for you. But have you seen anything like that? Maybe like... Uh, in terms of working with clients in, in a services organization previously and how it works with an internal product? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, f- frankly, a lot of the organizations we were working with, um, 
there was a maturity curve just getting to APIs, or there, you know they were on the maturity curve getting to APIs. Introducing domain-driven design as part of you know that whole exercise, frankly, would have been a distraction, just given where where they were in terms of the other challenges. Um, but, but that said, we did try to influence the the thinking with DDD, although not not necessarily you know using the whole toolbox, right? So you know specifically like cherry picking certain patterns. Uh, so for instance, anti-corruption layer. So thinking about um, you know if there's a, a API that's facading a system of record, to think about those APIs specifically as ACLs that sit in front of a, a, a legacy database or a mainframe, and then transforming those into a format that that matches more closely the the current domain of the business. So it wasn't like we were all sitting around and you know, having a big you know DDD event storming exercise, but but again, sort of cherry picking the patterns and using them as best practices. Um, you know, from a from, from a larger perspective. Sure, but the uh, the the strategic patterns are really the most important thing, anyway. So, um, sure, yeah. you know, any corrupting, like basically turning uh, a mainframe, you know, data source of some kind into something that's compatible with um, the model of a service, it's pretty important. So, yeah, good stuff. Yep. So if someone wants to use hypercurrent, uh, like if this sounds intriguing to, to anyone, or maybe even like, where do they start? Where do they even start to put themselves in a position to, to start thinking about monetizing APIs? Like where does an organization truly become API first from, you know, the overall cor- corporate vision standpoint? What's the next step? And then you know, introducing hypercurrent? How does that sort of come about? Yeah, we have two sorts of, um, uh, you know, you can call them engagement models, right? So, so the first kind of motion uh, that we see is a, is a, a company that already has an API, right? And, and they, they want the ability to meter, uh, monetize, and then uh, uh, market it on a developer portal or an API marketplace. Uh, so, so that that sort of motion is fairly straightforward. So, if you go to hypercurrent.io, there's a sorry hypercurrent.io. There's a contact form you can fill that out, and then we'll get in touch with you. Um, for other organizations that you know they they sort of know they need to do this but don't know how, um, we also have workshops that we run um, that that you know goes through um, more on the business side what's required to um, to stand up an API business. And then again, a lot of that is is around also. Um, Thinking about the business as as a SaaS business versus uh, whatever the traditional um, uh, business delivery method is. Yeah, interesting. So you mentioned a marketplace. Do you find that the marketplace is basically you know um, individual organization based, or do, do you see uh, a marketplace like AWS Marketplace as as some somewhere to sell APIs or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for us, it's, it's the former. So it's helping an organization stand up their own um, API marketplace for their own API assets. I wonder if there is actually for the future like a kind of marketplace product where it could be uh, industry-based, um, maybe segment within industry and so forth. I mean, maybe that's a Maybe that's a hyper marketplace or something. Right, hyper right. current, yeah. Well, I'm sure you have your hands full with what you're doing now. So, um, not out of the realm of possibility. Of long as we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thanks uh, for 
meeting today, John. It's uh, Friday. I know we're both we both had pretty big weeks here, and um, let me see. It's actually pretty close to uh, starting the weekend for you. So thank you for taking time and um, look forward to talking to you again. Maybe we can talk about that um, internal API or uh, internal um, DDD kind of topic, like the the ways that you work with DDD internally, and that'd probably be a pretty good future conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, thanks for the time today. This was great. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. And we uh, look forward to getting your feedback on this podcast. So we uh, will see you next time. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.